Hello, everyone, and welcome to the Tobolowski Files, a series of stories about life, love, and Hollywood, as told by actor Stephen Tobolowski. My name is David Chen, and joining me today, he is the man who played study advisor Roger Robinson in the 2000 TV series That's Life, Stephen Tobolowski. Stephen, how are you doing today? Once again, I'm perplexed. <laughs> I'm perplexed. I remember uh, Paul Sorvino was in That's Life, correct? Uh, yes, that is correct, along with Kevin Dillon, Ellen Burstyn, and Heather Dubrow. That's a pretty great cast. Now, I remember where... I have no idea what I did. I I have no recollection of this. You don't remember all the study advising you did during That's Life? (laughs) No, no. But I do remember this, is that we shot on the back lot, and I want to say Warner Brothers. I want to say... The back lot of Warner Brothers, where they have like New York City or something, they have a fake city up there. And there's a fake courthouse and fake buildings. And I had to walk across the fake street into the fake courthouse at one point in time. And David, they use that <laughs> fake street and fake courthouse for so many shows now. I don't remember that's life. But I remember that fake street, and I see it on uh, Kool-Aid commercials. I see, <laughs> I see it on car commercials, everything. So I remember the trappings of that show without remembering one line. Well, you know what's interesting, Stephen? You shot That's Life in the year 2000, which is also the year in which you shot Memento, the Christopher Nolan film uh, ah. in which you played Sammy Jenkins. So basically— 2000 was a huge year for you because you not only appeared in one of the most beloved pieces of media of all time, you also appeared in Memento. (laughs) (laughs) Oh, man, you had me falling off that cliff. Yeah. (laughs) That was that was that was great, but but it was wonderful meeting Paul Servino, you, you know, and and it was it was very exciting meeting him. He he was you know a big star in in all those gangster things. It was, you know, he, and 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 meeting Chris was of course one of the most important moments of my life. That was that was great meeting Chris. That was a big year, indeed. That was wait wait wait. Are you forgetting? Was that when we were going to have uh, terror in the year two thousand, where, where the computers were all going to break? Y two K, but that that Y two K bug was going to happen when it became two thousand, not during the year two thousand, Stephen. Right. So right before I did Memento, I also acted with the uh, wonderful female wrestler China in uh, Terror in the Y two K. Right before that, and then. Since there was no terror in Y2K, they changed the title to something like Alien Fury. They kept changing the title, but I, what I remember about I think you're that thinking was thinking of Alien Fury Countdown to Invasion by Rob Hedit. Yes, that that is correct. Alien Fury, Rob Hedit. But I did get to work with China, which was wonderful. But that all happened around that juncture of when the world was about to end. Not quite unlike now. Well, Stephen, uh, this episode, if everything has gone according to plan, which who knows if it has or not, 
This episode that you're listening to right now, listeners, um, was recorded in September of 2020. We, we, uh, I, I, Stephen and I agreed we're going to bank all the episodes this season. Um, we're going to have a consistent release schedule. We're going to release them weekly uh, and see how that goes. Uh, but yeah, we're recording this right now in September of 2020. I assume when you're listening to this, it's months after September 2020. And we are still dealing with coronavirus. Now, one of the things that has been interesting to observe, to experience, has been that uh, this pandemic has really played with our sense of time. Time has felt, to me, alternately extremely slow and also light speed fast, right? Because at times it feels like, um, wow, we're doing the same things over and over every single day. But then at the same time as it's very repetitive and time feels like, uh, it's just going really slow. Sometimes I, I look up and like six months have passed, you know? How have you been experiencing time recently, Tobo? You know, it's almost like you read my mind. I, I think it's tangentially the same thing, but it's a little different because I have found that one of the most interesting parts of the pandemic has been, I guess you would say, the unintentional experiment in changing our habits. Because I, I used to work. I used to I used to wear different clothes every day. I used to know what day it was. And David, that's not rhetorical excess. Uh, Monday was camera blocking day. Friday was network run-through day. I used to listen to the Beatles on my way to Sony Studios and Grunge Rock on my way home. Habits are easily mistaken for purpose. The things we do become the things we think we are. And sometimes that's true. In the arts, I would say whether musician, dancer, actor, painter, sculptor, the discipline and the time one has to invest tend to make your habits and your purpose the same thing. With the pandemic, all of my habits are gone. No more shoot days on Tuesday. No more wearing my lucky shoot day sweater. What do I have left? The only answer a therapist would suggest is me, whatever that is. Fortunately, I've had a couple horrible periods in my life when I didn't know who I was anymore. Those dark days prepared me for a lockdown. My broken neck. My heart surgery. I'm maneuvered uncertainly from day to day, and on some days, hour to hour, wondering what would be left of me when I healed. If I healed. Even now, writing this story, my mind goes to those two moments when I could have, when I should have died. My heart surgeon told me that when they cracked open my chest, my heart was black from lack of oxygen. He said they gave me three new arteries. I asked him, where from? He said, from the box God gave you called spare parts. They reconnected the arteries, charged me up. He said my heart started beating again, and it turned pink, and then red. And then it began pumping strongly and turned dark red. And he said, it was beautiful. It was like a rose blooming. Creepy, but poetic. Footnote, that box of spare parts were two arteries in my chest and the artery that runs down my left arm. When I ponder my moments of personal horror, surprisingly, I never immediately think of the two, three, and yes, maybe even four years I took cocaine regularly. But I repeat myself, because usually when you do cocaine, you do it regularly. 
Beth and I had lots of parties at our house on the hill. Lots of friends brought their friends, and some of those friends had cocaine. I never felt the need or the desire to buy coke on my own, and I didn't really enjoy the experience. Contagion. It's a scientific fact. Our behavior is highly influenced by the people around us. What we see sets the bar for what we do. This is the theory behind basic training in the military, honors classes in high school, and the horrible legacy of child abuse. Initially, I only took an occasional bump, as we used to say, from friends sitting around the swimming pool after a play, after a rehearsal. I saw it as a sort of a thank you for Beth and me providing the chips and dip. When Budge became a frequent visitor at our house, I unexpectedly found the need to celebrate more often. Budge had the ability of making ordinary nights party time. When it came to ideas as to when, where, and how to party, Budge was the master of supply. He also provided a lot of the demand. He introduced me to a Coke salesman outside of Fellini's Italian restaurant named Malcolm. Malcolm was a jazz musician without a band. My Wednesday nights with Malcolm had several takeaways. We talked about jazz. We talked about drugs. I told Malcolm I didn't have a cocaine problem. I just enjoyed it with friends, on occasion, for parties. Malcolm asked, How often do you have these parties? I laughed and said, Well, yeah, just about every night. And we both laughed. Malcolm, in a moment that seemed to work counter to his self-interest, said, Addiction isn't just how much drug you do. It's also how much time you spend trying to get your drug. Time, not money. That's the true indicator. How much time have you spent thinking about coming to see me again? I didn't answer. Malcolm nodded. Yeah, think about that. When Budge and I went to New York to work on the Miss Firecracker contest, we seemed to leave Malcolm and the sleepless, starless nights of Los Angeles behind. We had too much work to do. There was too much on the line. Neither Beth nor I had recovered from the premature demise of the wake of Jamie Foster. Sidebar. I am writing this during the pandemic of 2020, and I still haven't recovered from the demise of the wake of Jamie Foster. At the time, it was the sharp pain that often accompanies the end of a dream. In this case, it was the maybe childish dream that Beth and I would be babes on Broadway. Here's a newsflash. Time doesn't heal all wounds. It just sifts out the wounds of the flesh from the wounds of the soul. The wounds of the flesh heal. They leave a scar, but they heal. I suspect the wounds to the soul never heal. They just turn into nightmares. After the wake was slammed opening night, our purpose was shattered. All we had left were our habits. Wake up, waste time, walk to the theater, perform, drink, sleep, repeat. We had to do 28 more shows according to the rules of New York playwrights. I don't know if these rules are still in effect, but at the time, we had to do 28 shows for Beth to retain the rights to her play. 28 shows for me to contemplate the plane ride home. 28 shows for Beth to contemplate the end of her writing career. Don't quit before the miracle happens. This doesn't just apply to recovery. 
It applies to any difficult endeavor. And just about anything connected with the arts is difficult, especially being a writer or an actor. These are enterprises that strive to create something from nothing. That's always risky. Actors can always hide behind other people's mistakes. Bad production. Too much competition. And the actor's favorite, bad writers. Writers have no cover. It would be easy for Beth to slink back to Los Angeles and live off of the royalties of Crimes of the Heart and her reputation as a Pulitzer Prize winner. There were nights when she may have considered it. Her heart was broken. But she had more to say and... She didn't quit before the miracle happened. In this case, the miracle came in the shape and substance of the Manhattan Theater Club. They wanted to do the Miss Firecracker contest. We were in New York again. We were in the game. But we weren't likely to get another chance. We had the opportunity of making the miracle happen. None of our weapons were supernatural. We had a great play. We had a perfect cast. Leading that cast, we had Holly Hunter playing a role she was born to play. But some things I can't explain. When I was at a low point, God sent one of the great actresses of the world, B.B. Anderson, to encourage me. We didn't open the play on opening night. We ate Italian food instead, hoping the FBI would have an opportunity to arrest one of our theater goers. They did. We opened a week later, and what a difference. The cast was relaxed and joking after our final rehearsal. Holly was ready for battle. I left the theater after that last rehearsal the day of our opening. The late afternoon sunlight hit me, and that's when I was ambushed. I didn't even see it coming. The weight of the miracle fell on me like a punch to my heart. I was hit with a case of pre-show nerves that was worse than when I opened on Broadway. Now there were no excuses. Frank Rich, John Simon, and company would be sitting on the front rows with their nasty little notepads. The terror changed my flight plan. I didn't go back to the apartment to change. I took a hard left and walked down the street to Harrigan's. The bar was almost empty. It was too late for theater goers, too early for alcoholics. I was too nervous to eat. I sat at one end of the bar, and a neatly dressed man, somewhat older than I was, sat at the other. He looked like he was in real estate, or maybe was the concierge of a high-end hotel. I guessed he was waiting for his date. I ordered Guinness with a shot of Jameson's on the side. I pondered as to how I wanted to drink my dinner. Budge had instructed me that there were several options. You can alternate. You can sip the stout and then chase it with whiskey. Or you could pour the whiskey directly into the stout, which tends to sweeten the whole concoction. Budge also said you could drop the entire shot glass into the Guinness. That's called a depth charge. This variation carried more risk. You could chip a tooth when you got to the last swallow. I decided to pour the shot into my Guinness. That drew the attention of the man at the far end of the bar. Good evening, he said. He, he was English. Good evening, I replied. Interesting choice there. Uh, yes, sir. We, we call this a boiler maker in America. What do you call this in England? We call it sufficient. I laughed. Uh, not tonight. No, not tonight. Maybe two would be sufficient. Big night, he said. Yes, sir. Waiting for a lady? Yes, And no, 
I'm waiting to go to the theater. Ah, are you an actor? I laughed and said, what, after drinking a Boilermaker? Well, he said, I'm English. We have different standards. No, sir. I'm a director. My play is opening down the street. Oh, God, he said. He shook his head and raised his glass. To you, sir, and have a good show. Thank you. We clink glasses. I sat back on my stool. Are you waiting to go to the theater, too? Oh, yes, yes, unfortunately. I open tonight as well. Oh, God, I exclaimed, and we both laughed. Are you directing? Oh, no, 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 heavens no. I'm a writer. Oh, that's horrible, I said, and we both laughed. (laughs) Yes, I know, he said, and here I shall sit until, and he looked at his watch, I am determined to sit here until 10 p.m. Would you like to join me? No, sir, I said. I don't have that kind of guts. I have to watch the play. He shook his head. Oh, no, 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 not me. What did you direct? Uh, The Miss Firecracker contest. Good show to you. And we drank. And what play did you write? I asked. A kind of Alaska. And I almost fell off my stool. He extended his hand. Harold Pinter. Yes. Yes, sir. Oh, God. Yes, sir, I know. I I know who you are. Oh, my God. You're one of my favorite writers ever. Please. Please. Here we are all victims of the next two hours, and you are... Harold extended his hand. Stephen. Stephen Tobolowsky. And we shook hands. Stephen, it is a pleasure. I drink to your success. And to yours, Harold. We drank. And now we only had to wait another three and a half hours for the miracle to happen. We're in the money. We're in the money. We've got a lot of what it takes to get along. We're in the money. The skies are sunny. Old man, depression, you are through, you done us wrong We never see a headline about a red line today And when we see the landlord, we can look that guy right in the eye I used to think a miracle was usually a function of hard work and good timing. If you kept at it, your number would come up. Persistence. For example, if you work hard enough at your craft, you will get more opportunities to direct and act in New York City. Add to that your desire to drink before or after a performance, and you may eventually toast with Harold Pinter. Miracle. Our opening of the Miss Firecracker contest was beyond logic, preparation, or timing. But we got to the finish line. How? I have no idea. But we got there. We got rave reviews. We ran for a year. Beth got a movie deal from it. Holly was her star. It falls into the category of unlikely, but not necessarily miraculous. I've mentioned in previous podcasts the Talmudic view that one should never get into a situation that requires a miracle for your deliverance. Wow. When I first stumbled across this line, I was taken aback. It wasn't just the dark view of the world and of prayer. I suspected the author was speaking from experience. 
Consequently, I tended to believe it was true. Miracles had a downside. They cost a lot. Maybe more than you ever imagined. Maybe more than you could ever afford. It's interesting that humans have come up with something called a miracle, a category of events that can't happen, leading to results we don't deserve. Still, miracles exist in the minds of believers and non-believers alike. And there seems to be very little disagreement to a commonly accepted definition of a miracle. Divine intervention. Or more specifically, divine intervention with the purpose of salvation. The miraculous event is one of the oldest concepts expressed through poetry or legend. The specifics of what a miracle is has evolved over the centuries. In the Torah, the first miracles were only enacted by God. Like the creation of the world, the destruction of Sodom and Gomorrah, Then humans became emissaries by performing miracles in God's stead, like Moses enacting the plagues of Egypt and parting the Red Sea with his staff. Then there was a curious change. The tide turned against miracles by the end of the book of Deuteronomy. We are warned, if a prophet arises using miracles and wonders to entice you to follow him and lead you into idolatry, don't listen, don't follow. In other words, a miracle itself has no intrinsic value. It is dependent on its purpose. The negative view of miracles continued into the Middle Ages. The great philosopher Maimonides said, The belief in Moses and the law has nothing to do with miracles he performed in the Torah, but in an actual revelation of God. Miracles can always be the work of witchcraft, and other non-divine agencies and cannot be accepted as proof. All of these definitions were challenged in the Enlightenment. Galileo, Isaac Newton. A miracle had to withstand the examination of science. It had to be an event that occurred outside the boundaries of natural law. That drastically cut down on the number of holy men. I had an evolving view of miracles throughout my life. When I was little, a miracle was only a plot used in fairy tales. But then on the first day of my sophomore year of college, everything changed. I was sitting in the green room, and I had one of my first experiences with existential despair. I ran and hid on the back row of the empty Margot Jones Theater. I was seeking comfort in the dark. I was praying, not for salvation but only for a sign. Would I have a future as an actor? In the theater, could I possibly succeed? My prayer was interrupted by the sound of the stage door opening and closing, and then footsteps. I thought it was the campus police coming to arrest me, but instead, it was a freshman girl I had never seen before. She stepped onto the stage. She didn't see me in the dark. She wandered into the only pool of light, She seemed lost as well. But then she struck a pose, like an acrobat, and began to walk an imaginary tightrope. She struggled from one side of the stage to the other, almost losing her balance, then regaining it. She made it to the imaginary safety of the invisible platform on the far side of the stage. Then she bowed to the darkness and ran out of the theater. And I fell in love.
that was Beth. That, that was the beginning of our relationship. I'd call it a miracle. Even by the classically accepted definition, a divine intervention for the sake of salvation. In my 50s, I developed a more refined view of miracles. I was lucky enough to experience the blessings of hardship. And I was even luckier to survive the blessings of hardship. Fortunately, earlier, I had married a girl named Anne who seemed to have been born to handle hardships. That could have just been good luck. Or more. But back when I directed the Miss Firecracker contest, I was on the middle of the metaphoric tightrope. I took the success of our opening in stride. I minimized the enormity of it. I chalked it up to hard work and good choices. It was clearly within the realm of natural law. We had several celebrations. The first was private, the morning after, with the New York Times and a cup of coffee. Beth and I were soaring. Our nights at Harrigan's became filled with more and more laughter and less and less with discussions of the ins and outs of the day's rehearsal. One evening after opening week, Budge and I were playing darts. I was getting ready to throw for my point when he said, Hey, buddy, you'll never guess what our little pal Garland told me. Not a clue, I said. I threw and missed. Budge took the darts, winked at me, then put his finger to the side of his nose What? I asked. Garland has a friend that... Budge raised his eyebrows in an exclamation point, pointed to his nose again. What, Budge? What? He sells coke? Budge sighed with exasperation. Pal, the entire point of innuendo is to avoid the eyes and ears of those around us. Yes, yes, yes. Garland can get us some coke. Well, I think we're doing fine, Budge. I know. Yeah, we're doing great. We're in a hit. We're going to be in New York for quite a while. I'm only saying it's good to explore the resources of the town, just in case, down the road. I don't know, Budge, I said. Budge nodded. You're right. You're right, pal. We're doing fine. Irish Whiskey Works just filed this discussion away under current events. On our next day off, after dinner, I stopped at a bank machine and got $100 in cash. Budge, Garland, and I jumped on the subway, headed to an apartment in Midtown. Marilyn didn't look like a drug dealer. She looked like a kindergarten teacher. She had a pretty face. Her hair was sprayed into place into a short flip. She spoke quietly and precisely as if she just caught you in a school hallway and was suspicious you didn't have a pass. So, you're all actors? Uh, No, I said, I'm a director, and Garland here, he works the light board, and Budge occasionally acts. Marilyn stared at me. I get a lot of actors. I was thinking I could grease the wheels a little with a freebie. Marilyn, you know, this is a good show that we're doing. If you ever have a night off, I'm sure I could get you a comp. I don't go to plays. Evenings are my busy time. Oh, oh, I, I see, yes, I said, Budge looked at me. So what are you interested in? Marilyn asked. Oh, uh, I looked at Garland, who shrugged. I I don't know. I assumed you sold cocaine. Marilyn smiled. I just needed you to say it. So it's entrapment if you're the police. Oh, oh, just habit, 
Marilyn said. I know you're not narcs. You're not in good enough shape. Budge looked at Marilyn and laughed. No, ma'am, no. I'm soft through and through. Marilyn continued quietly and quickly. I have a good product. I don't cut it with baby powder. I have two flavors, 20%, that goes for 125, and 100%, pure, that goes for 400 a gram. What do you want tonight? I looked at Budge and Garland. They looked at me and shrugged. Um, I guess a gram of the 20%, that's 125, cash. I pulled out my $100 in cash and looked at Garland and Budge. They looked back at me and smiled. I pulled out the final $25. Marilyn left the room and came back with a small, neatly folded paper packet. We celebrated that night, Budge and Garland and Beth and myself. Then we ran over to Harrigan's hoping Harold Pinter would come back. He didn't, but he could have. It's an unwritten law of the universe. For better or for worse, once argues the existence of twice. We danced to the Irish music on the jukebox until closing time. The play continued to grow beautifully. That's what happens with a good review in the New York Times. You don't have to win. The audience is over. People already believe the show is a hit. We began selling out quickly. People paid full fare. That meant the laughs and the tears were real. The Manhattan Theater Club began immediate discussions about extending. Beth's agent, Gilbert Parker, thought the response was so positive that there was a chance the show could move to Broadway like Crimes of the Heart. We just had to demonstrate to prospective producers that there was a large enough audience wanting to see the show. That meant we had to put good numbers up throughout the summer. We opened the Misfire Cracker contest near the end of May, around my birthday. Beth stayed to watch the show through June. Then she told me she had to go back to Los Angeles. She had meetings and other projects that needed her attention. I told her I would stay in New York to supervise the show. I wanted to make sure it stayed in top shape while its larger future was still being determined. Occupational hazard with actors. We often say things without knowing what they mean. I had no idea at the time what my promise to Beth meant. It meant I would be in New York, alone with Budge. There were no more rehearsals, so my days were free, endlessly free. My nights would be spent at the theater watching a show I'd already watched dozens of times. For however long I was going to be here, my acting career in Los Angeles would be on hold. As long as I stayed, the Manhattan Theater Club would pay my salary. But I only made the minimum, $270 a week. The worst of it was, Beth and I would be separated, certainly for weeks, maybe for months. She promised she would make occasional visits to see the show and to dance with me at Harrigan's. It was the effective end of my career as an actor and of my relationship. I didn't see any other choice. And sitting here today, with the wisdom of hindsight and the safety of forgetting unpleasant details, I still would have done the same thing. My life went from frantically busy to desolate within a week. My habits relating to work evaporated. I never needed to wake up. I never needed to bathe. I did, but I didn't have to. I held on to one habit, coffee, 
and usually a blueberry muffin. I bought it at the shop down the street and came back to the apartment to drink and munch and read the morning paper. I'd sit in the rocker and look out the big window at the water towers and the sky. One morning, shortly after Beth's departure, I was reading the paper with the morning sunshine streaming through my big window, sipping my coffee, and I had the disturbing feeling that I was not alone. Now, that was impossible. I always locked the door. I continued to read, and I sensed motion behind me. I didn't make any sudden moves. I looked to the side of my chair. A mouse carefully walked up to the rocker. He looked up. Our eyes met. I went back to my paper, and the mouse sat beside me. And I was no longer alone. I don't know exactly how it started, but it started in fun. I just wanted someone to be gay with, to play with someone. But now I realize that I should never let you go, and I've come to tell you so. Every kiss, every hug seems to act just like a drug. You're getting to be a habit with me. Let me stay in your arms. I'm addicted to your charms. You're getting to be a habit with me. I called the mouse Thomas after one of the childhood characters my brother and I invented. Thomas wasn't a daily visitor. He came whenever it pleased him which was a few times a week. I never fed him. I was afraid he would invite his friends over. But whenever he showed up, I was filled with joy. I still can't explain that one, except that Thomas wasn't a rat. Loneliness is a merciless beast. It demands to be tamed by anyone, anything. Thomas is a perfect example. It's remarkable. He checked off so many boxes for me. He was quiet. He was cute. He trusted me not to kill him. If he were bigger, and a female, and a human, and looked like Beth, yeah, maybe, maybe. I suspect Thomas just wanted company as well, and maybe a part of my muffin, just like Beth. You know you're doing something wrong when your first hope every morning is that a mouse will climb out of a pizza oven and visit you. I needed to re-energize my sense of purpose. Once I began looking, an opportunity presented itself. Gilbert had warned us about the theatrical dog days of summer. Lynn Meadow underscored it. I saw her discussing with some of her assistants the 4th of July weekend, which is usually theater death. I had an idea. It was something I learned from the orgies Beth and I ended up hosting at our house on the hill in Los Angeles. I knew how to fill the theater. It wasn't sex. It was chicken. Fried chicken. Too many people used to drop in with the munchies. Before they took off their clothes and had sex with strangers, they went for a drumstick. That's how powerful Colonel Sanders was. I also learned the hard lessons of leftovers. A bucket goes a lot farther than you would think. I jumped into the conversation with Lynn. Lynn... What if we advertised a free 4th of July picnic dinner 
for matinees of the Miss Firecracker contest over the 4th of July weekend. Lynn stared at me as if I were speaking with a Scottish accent. Stephen, that's food. That's catering. No, 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 not necessarily, Lynn. I will be responsible for the food. Lynn was not sure if she heard my offer correctly. You will be responsible for the food? Yes, I said. For all of the food? Yep. So the theater put ads in the papers. (laughs) We sold out the weekend. We not only sold out the weekend, we were ranked as one of the top theaters percentage-wise for attendance in all of New York City. We beat cats. Of course, we had a comparatively small theater to fill, and we filled it with seniors who wanted a free meal. That's the beauty of statistics. They always lie with a straight face. Footnote, for the record, I only bought four buckets of chicken per show. That's it. Eight buckets total. That fed Saturday and Sunday matinee audiences, plus a couple of sides of corn on the cob and mashed potatoes. In 1984 prices, it was all under $200. Our high percentage of attendance during a notoriously slow theater week drew the attention of several producers. Two thought about moving the play to Broadway. The rest thought Off-Broadway was a better fit. I was thrilled that my Colonel Sanders offensive worked. I was absolutely giddy. To celebrate, I decided to enjoy the sunshine at Central Park. It was the 4th of July. Central Park was covered with so many picnic blankets it looked like a quilt. There were hundreds of strangers enjoying the afternoon. Some had fancy picnic baskets. Others just had a cold bottle of wine and a tuna sandwich. Pockets of pot smoke rose from different quadrants like campfires at Gettysburg. I didn't know a soul, but by chance, I wandered past a blanket where people knew me. Virginia, who worked with Lynn Meadow at the theater. She was a big fan of the show. She asked me to share their blanket. I sat down. This is Stephen Tobolowsky. He's the director of the Miss Firecracker Contest. An older man reached over and shook my hand. Well, I read the review in the Times. Sounds like a great show. It is, said Virginia. I've already seen it a half a dozen times. The older man seemed impressed. Well, I'll have to come by and check it out, he said. I'm sorry, your name was... Oh, yeah, it's long. (laughs) I know, I'm sorry. Stephen, Stephen Tobolowsky. He shook my hand. Rune Arlich. I paused mid-shake. Really? He laughed. Always have been. Wait, wait, wait. You're the real Rune Arledge. He laughed and nodded. That's me. You're the president of ABC. No, no, no. News. ABC News and Sports, he said. Well, that's good enough. Wow. It's a pleasure to meet you, I said. Same here, Stephen. I'll have to come by and see your show. You'll be there? Oh, yes, sir. I'm there every night. Every damn night. Yeah, I got to make sure the show stays sharp. Understood, said Rune. Sort of like the postseason. Exactly, sir. We are in the playoffs. I like that, Rune said. So, um, are you competing today? Competing? In what? Pie-eating, reefer rolling? What do people in New York do on the 4th of July? No offense, but this is not the most athletic-looking assembly. Are you insulting our city, said Rune with a smile? Never, sir. 
But <laughs> I gotta, what's the big competition? Virginia jumped into the conversation. Seed spitting. I beg your pardon, I asked. Rune was laughing. Watermelon seed spitting contest. You sign up yet? No, I said. Wouldn't be fair. You Yankees wouldn't stand a chance. Hey, that sounds like a dare. No, sir. I just have experience and skill and technique. Rune said, oh, I love this. Sign up. Rune, I said, shaking my head, I got to be straight with you. I have a trick tongue. I stuck my tongue out and bent it in a U shape like Virginia shrieked, oh, gross. Virginia, I only have what God gave me. Lots of people can curve their tongue this way like a U, like this. But I can also curve my tongue the other way. And I reversed the U. Virginia screamed. Rune laughed harder. Now, please, please. I think only one in 100,000 people can do that. And I just made that statistic up. But I have that ability. And I grew up in Texas, Rune. I spent hours spitting watermelon seeds. So what's the secret, Stephen? I'll never tell. Rune leaned forward with what looked like serious interest. Okay, here's the deal. I pick a smooth seed. That makes it a better airfoil. I dry the seed off on my shirt. Nothing sticky descended off course. Then I put it in the crease of my tongue. I fold my tongue back and blow, building up maximum air pressure. And then I let it fly. Show me, man. Sign up, Rune challenged. All right. All right. But if I win, you have to come see the show. I walked up to the seed-spitting registration man. Sidebar. What a terrible job on the 4th. Watermelon seed registration man. Standing in the sun in flip-flops, doing paperwork for spitting adults. He walked up to me. So, you know the rules, he asked. Um, European or American standard, I said. No, just joking. I have no idea. What are the rules? You have to be behind the line when you spit. We judge distance and accuracy. You see that red chalk line there? Yes, sir. And the two yellow chalk lines two feet on either side of it? Yep. Yellow lines are out of bounds. You get three seeds. We take your longest spit that's closest to the red center line. Got it. That'll be $5. Yeah, here you go. I handed over the cash, went back over to an open melon, and picked my three seeds and got in line. I dried them. I rubbed them on my shirt. When it was my turn, I loaded seed number one onto my tongue. I took a breath, and it exploded. (laughs) 66 feet, right down the center of the red line. Damn, said the seed judge. I went back to Rune in Virginia. I was announced the winner. My prize was a brass spittoon. Rune was highly amused. Well, you'll have to show me that tongue thing again, he laughed. No, 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 no. I don't think so, Rune. I don't think so. Well, I'll see you at the play, he said. Absolutely. And we can have a beer afterwards on me. The seed official came and whisked me away. A photographer took my picture with the spittoon for the front page of the Sunday New York Times. A reporter, who obviously drew the short straw, interviewed me. I thought this would be a great victory lap to send the picture and the article to Beth along with the good news about the play. Unfortunately, 
New York rarely keeps its promises. They bumped me in favor of a picture of a baby sitting on a watermelon, which, frankly, is a little cliché, and not as newsworthy as a 66-foot spit. I heard a rumor that they were checking to see if I had broken the world record, but apparently at the time seed spitting was not considered an achievement. Footnote. I just checked. Now it is. The world record for spitting a watermelon seed is... 68 feet, 9 and 1 eighth inches. I just missed it. However, I still have the spittoon. I keep it on my bookshelves along with all the other crap I've kept over the years. I was surprised how quickly it happened, maybe just a week after my triumph of the 4th of July. I began to feel the loss of purpose. Nature abhors a vacuum. This time, evenings with Budge and Marilyn rushed in. There was something odd about Marilyn. She was polished, highly professional. She seemed intelligent. She always wore expensive outfits. But I had the feeling she never left her apartment because her apartment is where she did business. She was not like Malcolm, hanging out behind an Italian restaurant. She had clients come into her home in New York. She'd put on some music while she went to fetch her product from her bedroom. Uh, She may not have kept all of her cocaine there, but she kept plenty. That shows an enormous trust in humanity. Or that she was armed. I'm guessing the latter. One night, Budge and Garland and I sat at Marilyn's little dining table listening to Fleetwood Mac. Marilyn came out of her bedroom with some envelopes. Here is your gram, 20%, and I wanted you to sample some of the 100%. Marilyn put a mound of powder on her little mirror. She began to cut it into four short lines. Some people like the 100%. Then you could cut it yourself to the strength you like. I ship anywhere in the country. If you want the 20%, just write me and say you want me to send you a cassette of the song I played for you. If you want the 100%, you say you want me to send a metal cassette of the song I played for you. Marilyn went first and snorted a line of the 100%. Then she handed us little straws. We took turns. Sidebar. It's interesting that the metaphors Marilyn used to sell her cocaine have vanished from our vocabulary. The unexpected difficulties in being a drug dealer is mining for metaphors. Regular or metal cassettes were a thing of the 80s. I imagine in the 90s she had to jump to VHS or Betamax tapes. Then to DVD or streaming, nothing lasts. It's why Sigmund Freud, in his lectures on comedy in 1915, suggests you should never write jokes based on current events or celebrities, like the Kaiser or Austria-Hungary. Times change faster than you could imagine. I was fine with the 20%. It was much better than what Malcolm sold. With Marilyn's 20%, I stayed within the range of normal. At my wildest, I felt like I was celebrating more quickly and efficiently than usual. But 
the 100%, was beyond anything I could have imagined. I vanished. With the 100%, I knew I could see, but I didn't know what I was seeing. I couldn't feel my body or the ground. I had no weight or form. I became a shadow. Maryland offered us a drink, turned on some music. We stayed there until we drifted back to Earth enough to get home safely. But we lost our way. We stopped at a bar. The bars in New York come in different flavors. They're grouped according to closing times. The fancy bars were 12 o'clock bars. They closed at midnight. Final call was around 11.15 to 11.30. These were bars that catered to the pre-theater crowd. They often had real menus, tables with tablecloths, waiters who wore vests. It was difficult to go to a 12 o'clock bar if you were in a show. Final curtain is, what, 10.30? Then you have to take off your makeup, you have to get dressed. You get to the bar by 11.15, time to go home. The next category was the 2 o'clock bar. Harrigan's was a 2 o'clock bar. Last call was 1.30. Most of the Irish bars fell into this category. These bars were not fancy. They were loud and boisterous. Bartenders usually had a shotgun behind the bar for trouble. Then there were the 4 o'clock bars. Last call, 3.30 a.m. These were bars for hardcore alcoholics. These bars were usually quiet. They served beer, inexpensive whiskey. If you were a serious drunk, you would finish your last drink at closing time, and then you had to hit the streets for the next two hours. But that's all, because in New York, they had 6 a.m. bars that opened at sunrise. But there was one bar we knew that went against the current, Café Central. Café Central wasn't an alcoholics bar. It was unique. It was filled with actors, singers, models, producers, and people pretending to be those people. I had no idea when we worked together in New York, but at one point in the history of this venerable watering hole, my dear friend Julie Haggerty was co-owner of Café Central. Julie said back then, (laughs) Café Central was an all-night, all-the-time bar and seemed to be a bit druggy. She laughed and said it was one of those places in New York she tried to avoid. Budge, Garland, and I found out about Café Central the easy way. We stumbled in the front door. We drifted from Maryland's to a 12 o'clock bar, and then to a 2 o'clock bar, and we got to Café Central at what we assumed was closing time. We hoped we could get one final drink before we called it a day. Due to the lateness of the hour, the bar was empty. The bartender at the time was Bruce Willis. Yes, Bruce Willis. Before Bruce was an action star, he was an action bartender at the Café Central. Bruce was cleaning up when we walked up to the bar. Hey, fellas, out late tonight, said Bruce. We are just looking for a nightcap, Budge said with a certain drunken charm. I added, we're extremely high. Budge and Garland looked at me. Big surprise there, said Bruce. Budge was trying to shush me, but for some reason I thought he was trying to encourage me to share the events of the evening with Bruce. We went to Maryland's, I said. Bruce smiled. Maryland's? Garland bust out laughing. Yeah, she gave us some 100%. Budge started laughing, as did Bruce. So, um, 
You guys had 100% whatever that is, said Bruce. And guys, I doubt it was 100%, but I wasn't there. Bud stepped in front of me. Bruce, kind sir, if we could trouble you for a drink. Well, said Bruce, the place is empty. I'd say we could party. Bruce sprung out from behind the bar and locked the front door. He held up the keys and said, and now it's a private party. Bruce ran back behind the bar and pulled down bottles of whiskey, vodka, tequila, a few glasses. There's my contribution. I pulled out Marilyn's little envelope and put it on the bar. Here's my contribution. Bruce raised an eyebrow. Hey, is that 100%? No, 20, but it's better than Malcolm's. He's back in Los Angeles. Bruce laughed. Well, as long as it's better than Malcolm's, that's all that matters. We unwrapped the little envelope. Bud started cutting out lines of coke on the bar. We partied at Cafe Central until 2. P.M. 2 P.M. I had no idea. When Bruce unlocked the doors and said we had to go, it wasn't morning. It wasn't lunchtime. People had eaten lunch and finished with most of their workday. They were thinking about going home. This was terribly wrong. For the first time, I was frightened in New York, not of being mugged. I was afraid of me. How did so much of my life slip away? Garland and I had to be at the show in five hours. Budge had to act in the show in five hours. I walked into my apartment. Thomas was waiting by my rocking chair. He looked at me standing by the front door. I could see the hurt in his eyes. It's as if he were saying in his mouse way, Where were you? I was worried. I didn't know what to say. I was embarrassed. Worse, I was ashamed. I was ashamed of myself and for the mouse I'd let down. Making mistakes is different than doing something shameful. Everybody makes mistakes. When you make one, you try to never do whatever you did again. Shame is addictive. Rather than avoid, you're drawn back to undo the damage again and again and again. Mistakes build experience. Shame builds secrets. Secrets have a gravity that pull you away from your purpose. The next morning we were back on schedule. Newspaper, coffee, muffin, and a mouse. But for the first time, I gave Thomas a bit of my muffin as an apology. He ate it happily. All was forgiven. That night after the show, I went to Harrigan's with Budge. We ordered the makings of a boiler maker. So, pal, how are you doing without Beth? He asked me. Well, it's better now that I have Thomas. Thomas? Yeah, I think he lives in the pizza parlor. He just comes upstairs at night, leaves in the morning. Budge looked at me. Budge, he's a mouse. Pause. You have a pet mouse? Budge asked. No, 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 he's not a pet. He's his own man. Budge lit a cigarette and shook his head. Pal. You're either stoned or you need to get stoned. I don't think so, Budge. I'm still recovering from Cafe Central. Hair of the dog, buddy. Age-old cure for whatever ails you. Budge, I think I lost a couple years of my life the other night. And I don't mean bad years like when I'm old, like 70 to 72. I think I lost good years. So like when I turn 35, I'm going to go right to 37. Pal, I feel like that all the time. 
But the opposite is true, too. You can ride on a merry-go-round, or eat a really good sandwich, or find a dollar bill in the street, and suddenly you feel like you're years younger. Well, yeah, I guess that's true. Of course it is. Remember, life isn't easy. Not like driving down a freeway. You follow the signs, you get to where you're going. No, life is complicated, like eating with chopsticks. I took a drink of my boiler maker. Budge continued, I'm only saying, pal, these are the golden days. You can't be afraid to celebrate. These times may never come again. Beth came back into town a couple of weeks later. I wasn't sure if I should tell her about Thomas. It could result in real-world consequences like rat traps. And as I mentioned, Thomas was not a rat. We had lunch with producer Frank Jero. He was very excited about the possibility of moving Miss Firecracker off-Broadway. That night we saw the show. It was wonderful. Sidebar, in retrospect, the play was the true celebration. We made something out of nothing that had the power to make everyone who worked on it, who saw it, and who remembered it feel a couple of years younger. That would have been enough. Unfortunately, it wasn't. Out of our desire to commemorate our celebration, we went out to celebrate. Holly, Belita, Budge, and I wanted to celebrate Beth's return with something a little fancier than Harrigan's. Holly suggested Charlie's on 10th Avenue near 45th Street. Footnote. I just looked on the map and Charlie's isn't there anymore. No, at least not as it was. Charlie's was rumored to be owned by William Devane, the great actor who rose to fame because he looked a lot like Robert Kennedy. He starred in many primetime soap operas that dominated television in the 1980s. I acted with William in Knott's Landing, and I told him this story, to which he shook his head and said, Yeah, sounds about right. Charlie's was a four o'clock bar, but it was definitely upscale. It was only a couple of avenues from Broadway, so most of its patrons were actors, writers, directors. Charlie's offered premium beer, wine, and whiskey. They had a full late-night dinner menu for show folk entertaining friends and family. If you were in a play, you were always welcome at Charlie's, especially if you got a good review in the Times. The crucial geographic fact was that Charlie's was on 10th Avenue. That is the far west side. The Manhattan Theater Club at the time was on 73rd between 3rd and 2nd Avenue, the far east side. That meant we needed a taxi. Finding a taxi cab after final curtain in New York was as hard as finding pork chops at Zabar's. We began walking west, and we saw the blessed light on top of a cab headed toward the park. I ran into the street and started waving like a madman. The cab pulled over. I opened the back door. 
Beth and Holly and Belita started to slide in. The cab driver turned and looked and then shook his head. No, no, he said urgently. What's wrong? I asked. You have five, he said. Yes, five, I answered. No, only four. I only carry four. You need yellow cab. But you are a yellow cab, I shouted. No, I am medallion cab. But you are yellow. Yes, cab is yellow, but I not a yellow cab. That a special cab. They carry five people. I lose my license if I take five. Go, go, go. Look for yellow cab. They say yellow cab on the side. See, I have no yellow on the side. Yeah, right. Sorry. The girl started sliding out. Budge jumped into the discussion. He said to the driver, hold on there, pal. He turned to me. Buddy, we have to split up. Right, right, I said. He held open the door and bowed, ladies first. Beth, Holly, and Belita slid back into the cab. I shut the door, saying to Beth, Sweetie, we'll meet you at Charlie's. Get us a big table. See you, sweetie, Beth waved. And the medallion cab drove off into the night. Budge and I were at a crossroads. We were on a street amidst a rush of cars and people, but no cabs. Pal, I've got an idea. What, I asked. Slight detour. What if we go over to Maryland's? Get a little, uh... Budge winked and went through a series of eye rolls, head bobs, and hand signs, which I now recognize meant get high. Budge continued, we get a little something from our girl, and by then traffic would have let up. Then we pop over to Charlie's and share our bounty with the cast. Sort of a welcome back to New York surprise for Beth. A half an hour later, we were sitting at Marilyn's table. She emerged from her bedroom with a little white packet. I handed over the cash. Budge nodded in approval. Marilyn sat down with us. I don't know if you're interested. And she slid a piece of paper over to me. It was an address. I have some clients who told me they're basing tonight. I can call and get you an invitation. Basing, I asked. Marilyn said, free basing. You seem to like the intense high. This is the most intense. Budge looked at me and nodded enthusiastically. Oh, yes, 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 said Budge. He slapped me on the back. Buddy, once you free base, wow, knocks your socks off. You'll love it. Of course, it can kill you sometimes. You roll the dice, but this is New York City. What else is new? One thing for certain, once you do this, you will be addicted for good. Definitely. Forever. (laughs) Budge laughed and rubbed his hands together like a troll in a Grimm's fairy tale. Why not, I said. Marilyn gave me the address. I'll call them. Uh, Marilyn, I don't recognize any of these streets. It's north, Stephen. Washington Heights. Just head towards Harlem and keep going. The A train will take you there. Or it's a bit of a cab ride. Thanks, Marilyn. Wow, we better get going. Budge and I hit the streets. Should we get a cab? I asked. Hell yes. We don't want to be taking the A train this time of night. That could be dangerous. Let's cab it. And pal, I just want you to understand. If we do this, there is no going back. Free base is worse than heroin. 
Forget about Malcolm. We're going to be making a whole new set of friends. We may need a gun permit. Budge laughed and turned to the traffic to look for a cab. Budge, there's a subway stop right here. Why don't we just take a train over to the west side, and then we can look for a cab? Whatever you say, boss man. Meanwhile, Beth and Holly and Belita met up with Mark and Margot at Charlie's. Pat wasn't there. Pat never went out with us. Sidebar. Pat Richardson had bigger fish to fry than having drinks with the cast. She was pregnant and wanted a child more than a good review from the Times. Her instinct to protect her pregnancy was so extreme it could have been documented for a segment on Mutual of Omaha's Wild Kingdom. At the time, the Manhattan Theater Club was operating in an old building with a substandard air conditioning system. We were performing over the summer in New York. The theater got very hot, especially during matinees. Pat told me she would refuse to go on stage if the temperature got over 90 degrees, under the lights, with a full house. Well, sure, that seemed like a reasonable request that could safely remain in the realm of ideas, but not with Pat. She got a handful of little calendars that filling stations used to hand out, the kind that had tiny thermometers attached. Pat cut off the thermometers and stapled them around the stage before the show, on the backs of chairs, on coffee tables, in books, on sofa cushions. I watched the matinee with amazement as Pat changed her blocking and moved from thermometer to thermometer checking the temperature, and she never missed a line. That's when I knew, without question, that if one of those little bastards crossed 90 degrees, Pat would have walked off the stage. The good news is, it never got over 90 degrees. Pat had the baby, and we still laugh about the thermometers. Budge and I got off the subway on the west side and started walking north looking for a cab to go to Washington Heights. We hit another detour on 81st in Amsterdam, McAleer's Pub. McAleer's was a two o'clock Irish bar, a favorite hangout of Jim McClure and Greg Grove. Pal, it's going to be a long ride to the Heights. How about we just get a little bracer for the journey? Sounds good to me, I said. Budge and I sat at the bar, sipping a beer for the road. We were watching the Mets game, enjoying our beverages, when a couple of drunken dart players came over looking for a game. We told them we were otherwise engaged. At that point, one of them insulted Budge's mustache or his head. I, I couldn't tell which. But we had no choice. We had to take them on. We were playing cricket. Budge was about to throw to break the tie in the third and deciding game when the bartender shouted, Last call! I looked at my watch. Damn, it's almost two. I wonder if the gang is still at Charlie's. Budge looked around, consulting invisible spirits hovering about his head. Let's cap it. We arrived at Charlie's around 2.30. Everyone was still there. The party was in full swing. Where were you, Beth asked. Uh, Budge and I got sidetracked. I'm glad you waited for us. We were getting worried, Beth said. So were we. We got lost. We ended up getting a beer at McAleer's. Budge and I jumped into the festivities with no mention of the events earlier in the evening. Marilyn's little envelope remained in my pocket. Closing time rolled around. (sighs) Sidebar. Closing time at a four o'clock bar is daunting. 
when you leave at 3.30 a.m., by definition, you're up too late and you've had too much to drink. You must journey from the safe, small world of the bar, a world that has bathrooms, telephones, and hamburgers, to a world that is dark and deserted. There's a different challenge in getting a cab at 3.30 a.m. No one is driving. Holly thought we'd have a better chance if we could go to 8th Avenue. There were more signs of life, late-night restaurants, the bus terminal. The five of us crossed 10th Avenue. We started walking down 45th Street in the neighborhood that used to be called Hell's Kitchen. The streets were dark, silent. We could hear our footsteps. Our conversation and laughter echoed off of the apartment buildings. I could see the lights of Broadway two avenues away, which translates to about a third of a mile. Holly and Beth and Belita were in front of us chatting. Budge and I were silently pulling up the rear. Budge leaned close to me and said, Pal, now we're about to get killed. What? I whispered. Don't look. We're being followed. A gang of some sort, a few yards behind us. Look, over in the shadows, cross the street. They're over there, too. And up ahead, you could go ahead and look up ahead in front of us. I raised my eyes. There were two men at the end of the block facing us. Two men were in the street walking towards us. One had a baseball bat. Two men on the other side of the street were blocking a potential retreat. See him? Yes. Pal, the best we can hope for is to be robbed and beaten unconscious. The women will get the worst of it, but probably they'll just kill us. Shall we run for it? Where? As soon as we run, they know we've seen them. They'll close in. Now, this is it. And then the impossible happened. Headlights. I saw headlights coming from behind us. I turned to look. A cab turned onto 45th headed for Broadway. I jumped into the street and waved to him. He saw us and the cab drove through the dozen men closing in a few yards behind us. He pulled over. Thanks, I said. I opened the back door and called for Beth and Holly and Belita. Hey, guys, jump in. Let's go. The girls ran to the cab and started sliding across the back seat. There are five of us, I said. Yeah, I'm a yellow cab. It's okay. He pointed to the side door, and there it was, in beautiful, stenciled letters, yellow cab. Budge and I jumped in, and the cab drove us through the line of ten assailants waiting at the end of the street, and then drove each one of us home. It was a miracle. No way around it. It fit all of the criteria. Divine intervention with the purpose of salvation. It was beyond the explanation of natural laws. We got a yellow cab on a deserted street at 4 a.m. The next day, when we woke up, I introduced Beth to Thomas. She was creeped out, but I could tell she was taken by his charm. Beth drank coffee at the kitchen table. I sat in the rocker and looked out the window. In my pocket, I found a piece of paper with an address in Washington Heights. I wadded it up and threw it away. I sat back down and looked out at the roofs and the water towers. But all I could see was divine intervention. Everywhere. And the beauty was overwhelming. Never, 
get into a situation that requires a miracle for your deliverance. And I felt something else in my pocket. It was the unopened packet from Maryland. I took it out, looked at it in my hand and thought, no, for today, I'll take the water towers. That was the start of the real miracle. Thomas sat beside the rocker and seemed to be looking out at the rooftops as well. Does he just sit there? Beth asked. Usually, I said. Do you feed him? No. Well, once I said. He doesn't seem like a mouse. Do you think he's magical? I'm not sure, Beth. I'm not sure. Come on along and listen to the lullaby of Broadway. The hip and ballyhoo. The lullaby of Broadway. That was The Creature's New York Adventure, a series of stories told by actor Stephen Tobolowsky, and you're listening to The Tobolowsky Files. Stephen, this episode ends a three-episode arc in the show. And it puts us pretty close to the season finale of this season of The Tobolowsky Files. Uh, I think probably next week's episode is going to be the season finale. Maybe one more in addition to that. But we are coming up to the end of this set of episodes. And uh, we hope you out there have enjoyed uh, taking this ride with us. Uh, it's been a pleasure. Unfortunately, the pandemic gave me a lot of time and Fortunately, I was able to spend it writing and working with you, David, which is always a, a great thing. So I'm thrilled for the opportunity to continue with the podcast. And hopefully the fact that we may be wrapping it up here for a bit may be a sign that the pandemic will come to an end. Magical <laughs> thinking, just like the mouse, David, just like the mouse. All right. Well, you can find more episodes of this podcast at TobolowskiFiles.com. And Stephen, people can also watch YouTube versions of the podcast. Uh, where can they find those? I like the way you slipped me that clue. That was youtube.com slash tobofiles. And uh, you can find more of my work at Culturally Relevant. I do another podcast where I interview cool writers, directors, and artists. Check that out wherever your podcast can be downloaded. Culturally Relevant. Thanks to Simplecast for powering this episode of the podcast simplecast.com is a great podcast management and analytics tool. Check them out if you're thinking of starting your own podcast. That's going to do it for us for this week's episode of The Tobolowski Files. We will see you next week. Adios.